Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Do you believe in God? Not at the moment. Why not? I'm Dutch. You've got the wrong man. The pain, it's not really burning anymore, is it? It is pure pain. Yes. And it's mounting, going up the scale. There's no upper limit, you know. I believe you. I give you that ghastly scene. Me handcuffed to a black concertina-style radiator, while a sad man with a bald head and black pleading eyes crouched beside me, because the memory of it was triggered by something George Smiley said as he spoke to my students, my trainee spies, in the library at Sarat. Why pleading eyes? Because it seemed as if, although I was the one being tortured, that he was imploring me to ease his own anguish. Smiley put down his brandy glass. He looked round all of us, and he spoke with a seriousness that chilled even me. Just occasionally we meet the reality we've been playing with, until that happens with spectators. Our agents live out our dreams for us, and we case officers sit snug and safe behind our one-way mirrors, telling ourselves that seeing is feeling. It is not. And when the moment of truth strikes, if it ever does for you, well, from then on you'll become a little more humble about what you ask people to do for you. The first memory these words summoned was not of the radiator, it was of my television. Six weeks before Smiley's talk, my wife Mabel and I were watching the nine o'clock news. This has become a kind of even song for us. And there he was, Colonel Yerji. Now, the healthy reaction of an ordinary man would have been to leap to his feet and shout, Mabel, look, that fellow at the back there is Yerji. My God, it really is. But no... I went on silently watching the screen and sipping my whiskey and soda. As soon as I was alone, I put a fresh tape into the video machine. I wanted to be sure of catching the repeat on Newsnight. I knew I'd be watching it many times. So, Ned, a letter from Oscar. Yes, first in a long time. Given up for dead six months ago, was he not? Indeed, but it looks as if he's been alive and kicking under the rubble. The rubble was what was left of our network of agents in Poland. Polish security had for many years contented themselves with penetrating our existing networks and using them as channels of disinformation, or, when they could, turning our agents and playing them back at us. But after the fall, after Bill Hayden's treachery had been revealed, there was no more delicacy. Our agents were systematically and savagely obliterated, tortured and killed. You're quite sure he is calling to us from under the wreckage. The letter is from him. There were microdots on it in the correct prearranged positions. They turned out to be 16 pages of top-secret orders from the Polish Defence Ministry to Colonel Yezhi's department. Ah, yes, the monstrous Colonel Yezhi, who was based in Gdansk. And where is Oscar? Gdansk. And you want to venture there? Well, there is my naval background, Saul, and my Dutch identity's been tested often enough. It's strong. I could go in wearing that and the Dutch language. Oh, yes, 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 perfect, I'm told, from your mother. But I have to tell you, Ned, my adviser said no, no, no. 
They find it very difficult to believe Oscar could have survived Yeji's massacre. And I did suggest that given Oscar's record for duplicity and ruthlessness, he just might have and could be highly valuable. They relented a little. They said, we're dead against it, but maybe. I then pointed out that now we know how thoroughly Hayden gutted us, you don't have any secrets the Poles could torture out of you anyway. Mm, very true. So I say yes, but only for two days. Thank you, sir. And do please come back. Secrets or not, we'd be frightfully sorry to lose you. I had my own reasons for hoping Saul Enderby would send me to Poland. For several weeks I'd been aware of a coolness, a withdrawal in my wife, Mabel. Did she suspect I was seeing another woman? Well, I was. Monica. She worked in the services industrial liaison section. One night it was raining and I saw her waiting at a bus stop. I drove her to her flat. She invited me in, as banal as that. And the next night we had dinner together, trying to work out what the hell we had done. We came up with a convenient solution that we'd fallen in love. And now, what did I want? To save my marriage? Break up with Monica? Leave Mabel for her? Leave both of them? What I was sure I wanted was to get out of the country, if only for a few days. It was winter, deep cold, and at that time of year the procedure to contact Oscar was to phone three different cafes. If none of the calls worked, I was to wait at a particular tram stop at ten past nine in the evening. I had the registration number of his blue trabant. So, there I am, waiting in the snow in the Polish industrial slum that is Gdansk. To the left and right of me, dour, low-lit concrete apartment houses. Above me, a smouldering orange sky. No snow falling now, but the street is no more than a pair of black tracks at one side of the tram lines. Not the smallest sign of human love or pleasure, unless one counts the two drunks sitting in a doorway on the other side of the street. But they cling to each other in what looks like grief. And then a car is slowing, but it's not blue and it is not a trabant. When the two drunks have stepped out of their doorway, they look very sober now. Oscar will not be coming tonight. He has been dead for six months. Uh, you are confusing, monsieur. I'm waiting for no one but uh, the tram. English is poor for an Englishman. Ah, uh, you are confusing me. I'm from Holland. I'm Franz Joost. There was no ceremony. No locking me up for a few days to think about things. No talk or you'll be beaten. They simply began to beat me. And then they handcuffed me to a radiator and beat me some more. Three of them. Yeji and two thugs taking turns. Name? Franzi Host. English name. Not English. Dutch. Name? This I had long feared. To have my uncertain courage tested on the rack. Name? It is a kind of death. The shrinking and disintegration and agony are a form of dying. You are reduced mentally and physically to your last component of endurance. And you know all through it that you have within you the power to stop the dying with a word. Name. Name. Mistake. Mistake. Saul Enderby had said I had no secrets to give away, but I did have one. Who I was, my identity, my name. 
Did I have the strength to keep that secret? What was going on inside me was mortal combat between my spirit and my body. Those who were applying the pain were merely hired mercenaries in the secret war within myself. Name! English name! Franz Joost! All right, all right, enough for now. Leave her with me. Joost, born in Nijmegen. Do you believe in God? Not at the moment. Why not? And Dutch. You've got the wrong man. The pain. It's not really burning anymore, is it? It is pure pain, yes. And it's mounting. Going up the scale. There is no upper limit, you know. I believe you. Of course you do. And you don't hate me. Does that surprise you? I know you don't. I know my trade. You cannot bring yourself to hate me because I am your only savior. I want the, the consul, Dutch consul. I, I am the wrong man. No. No, you're the right man. I'm sure of that now. It's a very old radiator. It overheats. Next door is a bathroom. In there you'll find your suitcase. I had it brought here from your hotel. You'll have a bath and put on clean clothes. Then we will take a drive and then we will take a walk. The cold air will be good for you. What now? You shoot me and throw me over the cliff? No, you will leave Poland tomorrow, alive if not well. I have brought you here because there isn't a microphone on earth can hear us. I wish to spy for your country. Why should you want to spy for Holland? <laughs> Ah, uh, uh, all right, I propose to spy for the Dutch. I need a good professional Dutchman who can keep his mouth shut. You have passed the test. I choose you. You know who I am, of course. My savior? Yeah, that knows a schmell up. That's Dutch for I have no idea who you are. In the false compartment of your suitcase, you will find a wad of secret Polish documents. At the airport, you will have no customs problems. Why? I mean, it's not my business. Found machinery is, but why? Uh, yes, I suppose your people will want to know about motive. Uh, tell them anything you like. Tell them I'm bored. You could tell them I've realized the party is a bunch of crooks, but they know that already. My father, you know, was a Battle of Britain pilot. Shot down over Kent. You know Kent? I'm a Dutchman. Why should I know Kent? Our next meeting will be in Berlin on May the 5th. A few years later, when Yezh's loyalty to the perfidious British had been demonstrated beyond doubt, I put it to him that there was no evidence of his father having flown anything larger than a paper kite. Ha! My father was an old fool who cared for nothing but potatoes and vodka. So why? He was my secret university of espionage for years, but his contempt for motive, his own especially, never relaxed. Idiots like us do what we want to do. Then we look for justification. All men are idiots. Spies are the biggest idiots of them all. Beneath his cynicism, surely there was some kind of ideology. The same madmen and fools who run the party run the West. There is no difference. Now, when I told him that simply wasn't so... He looked at me with an anger that was like hatred. What about the church? 
I knew he'd been raised a Catholic. Christ was a manic depressive. He needed to commit suicide in public, so he provoked the authorities till he did them the favour. Those God-thumper guys are all the same. I know. I've tortured them. We told him, of course, that if ever things went wrong, we would spare no effort to get him out and provide him with a new identity in the West. I'm a Polish creep. I'd rather face a firing squad of my fellow creeps than die a traitor in some capitalist pigsty. Money, then? Simple as that? No. When we offer to open a Swiss bank account for him... I am not some cheap informant. Understand? But, of course, we didn't understand. Only once in the five years I ran him did he seem to let slip the clue I was searching for. We met in a gust house in West Berlin. Oh, I'm tired. I've been to a conference in Bucharest. All the time, wires from home, charges of brutality, corruption, more brutality. I am a very tired torturer. Here... And here. My wife is a scold, did I tell you that? <laughs> and she's ugly. <laughs> and my mistress is a moron. I'd rather have a game of billiards. Here. What is all this? What does it look like? Information. You carried all this on you? My pockets are big. You should know that by now. Did you take it all to Bucharest with you and then here? I dropped nothing along the way. Seven rolls of film? You're ungrateful, my little Dutchman? No, no, of course not. You think it's dangerous? Hmm? No danger is no life. No danger is dead. No danger... You might as well stay home and mind the baby. Bring up another idiot. What he was talking about, I believe, was not danger so much as feeling. He was terrified that if he ceased to feel, he would cease to exist. The news item which I taped to watch over and over shows a Polish cardinal at an outdoor meeting of solidarity in Gdansk. He's been exhorting the enormous crowd to moderation. Now he moves among his flock, bestowing blessings and accepting homage. Suddenly he freezes, as I did, when he sees Yerzy. For a moment he seems to make himself neater, pressing in his elbows and drawing back his shoulders, at attention, in obedience. And then he raises his arms again and gives an order to an attendant. Yerji is brought to him. The two men face each other, the secret policeman and the cardinal. The cardinal leans forward and speaks in Yerji's ear. Awkwardly, Yerji kneels. He receives the blessing. Every time I watch this moment, I see Yezhi's eyes close in what looks like pain. What is he repenting? His brutality? His loyalty to a vanished cause? His betrayal of that cause? Or is squeezing the eyes shut merely the instinctive response of a torturer, receiving the forgiveness of a victim? I think you've never forgiven me, Dutchman, for the radiator business. You know why? Uh, not just because you knew I was only doing my job. Also because you've never loved enough. Never been damaged enough or hated enough. I'm the same. What is forgiving for the likes of us? 
Did Mabel forgive me for the nonsense with Monica? No need. All that was required was a kind of pity and a tolerance and gentle good manners. And Monica and I, if we ever met in a corridor, we'd give each other a rueful smile. We could acknowledge ruefully that we'd never really been in love. Mabel and I could smile at each other the same way. But I have seen true love, been a witness to it, and I have witnessed real forgiveness. Hansen, it seems to me sometimes I'd been travelling all my life to find him. Hansen was a man worthy of pilgrimage. It was Smiley who brought him to my attention. George was in charge of service security at the time. They'd given him the courtesy rank of deputy chief. He seemed to be scuttling round all over the place, plugging one leak after another or damping down the latest of many scandals. But he found time to take me for a walk in the park to brief me about Hansen and look at his ducks. He is without doubt a quite remarkable man. He's half Dutch. His father was shot by a German firing squad during the occupation. His mother joined a British escape line. By the end of the war, she was running a fully-fledged network. Your own mother's work for the service was very similar. Is that why you're bringing me on this? Half-Dutch resistance mother? Can't do any harm. But in most ways, you and Hanson are entirely unlike. That also may do no harm. He was educated by the Jesuits. We don't know why his Protestant mother sent him in that direction. Give the Jesuits his soul, they'll give him a brain. One of those he certainly has. He speaks Dutch, English, French, German, Tamil, Khmer, Thai, Sanskrit, and more than a smattering of Cantonese. The Orient seems to have been an instinctive love of his. The brothers sent him to a seminary in Indonesia when he was 20. I believe he felt he'd found his home. He wrote papers on philology, marriage rites, illumination and the intelligence of the lesser apes. He discovered lost temples in the jungle. After six years of exploration, he was not only the kind of academic showpiece the Jesuits are famous for, he was a priest. Remarkable indeed. He was also a debauchee. Young girls, some very young, by Western standards, barely eligible for their first communion. When the scale of it and the duration became clear, more than a decade, and in every kampong, every side street, he was ordered to Rome. He refused to go. He went to ground the Jakarta. He had no money, no passport. But the brothel girls looked after him. He was pimp and bouncer. Then one day he shaved, put on a clean shirt, and presented himself at the British consulate. He wanted to spy for us. Now, as you know, Ned, British interests in Southeast Asia have dwindled with our empire, but the American... An official war in Vietnam, an unofficial one in Cambodia, and a secret one in Laos. Quite. And in our unlovely role as camp followers, we were happy to offer them Hansen's knowledge and talents. He made a home for himself in a village in northern Cambodia, where the Khmer Rouge held sway. From there, by radio, he could tell American bombers which villages were playing host to the Viet Cong. He lived that way for years. Official archaeologist and anthropologist, secret spy. About 18 months ago, he vanished. So did everyone else in the village. Khmer Rouge? Possibly. They have been known to empty entire villages. After a year, he was written off as dead. He came back to life last week in a brothel in Bangkok. We have to know where he's been then and what company he's been keeping. So, I'm off to Bangkok, if you'd be so good. Our head of station there is Rumbelow. You've met him? Yes. Yes. 
He's not a man one warms to, but we do need him. Show him all the courtesy you can. I know you're just back from Tel Aviv, and before that, Beirut, was it? Yes. Well, if you feel the need, take a couple of days' rest to shake off the jet lag. That's quite all right. That was Smiley speak for get to him as fast as you can and tell me I haven't got another king-size scandal on my hands. So, two days later, I was in Bangkok with the dreadful Rumbelo. For all we know, the Khmer Rouge never had sight and a sound of him. He still has all his fingers and thumbs. No other part of his anatomy missing, by all accounts. He lives in a cat house, after all. Not denying they might have had him. You know the score. You know they're savage buggers. A brown man doesn't play by Queensbury. But Hanson wouldn't be the first Joe to lie doggo for a while if things got too hot for any number of reasons. Then come bouncing back when it cools down. He wants his pension and he's gone. 18 months is quite a long while, and he didn't come bouncing to us, did he? Look at these people, Ned. Can you imagine a shower like this ever taken to communism? And the stamina for it. Have all the discipline of monkeys. <laughs> Duffy Marchbank spotted him. He's with a girl in this nightclub come brothel. Sea of happiness, it's called. Fell out market as these establishments go, and he rings for a bottle of champagne. Who should bring it in but this bloody great European chap? It's Jungle Hanson, the real thing. Duffy was sure. We showed his photo to everyone we knew when he first went missing. All over the damned hemisphere. Never said why. Just if you spot this blighter, holler. Well, Duffy hollered. Did Duffy speak to Hanson? Oh, not a dicky bird. Nary a wink. Phone me, just as you should have. There's a trooper, is Duffy. Salt of the earth. Last I heard, he was dealing in opium and shell cases. <laughs> he has an eye for a deal. You need that in this neck of the woods. Anyway, I sent Henry round the next day to have a look. Chinese bugger met a total hash of it. He's at your hotel now. I'll let him try to explain himself. I was to make reconnaissance ascertained this was truly handsome. You were to go in, sniff around, report back to me. That was all. No approach. But you did approach him. I use initiative, yes. You use the lumpy rice that passes for your brains. I saw the enormous round eye three times. Once carrying a tray of glasses, once pushing a trolley of bottles, and the third time disappearing through a steel door. I believe it was to the drink store. I said to the mama-san, who is the round eye who works for you? She said he lived with one of her Cambodian girls. Cambodians are rated even lower than round eyes in Thai zoology. She said that he had tried to buy her, make a lady of her, but she refused to leave. She would stay with her friends. So now he brings her to work every day and busies himself about the place until she is free to go home. Her house name is Amanda. She is number 19. Like a menu number. She is very young. We all know about Hanson's taste in that line. Did the mama son give him a name? She called him Hamsin. Now tell us how you made a bloody fool of yourself. I waited outside in my car until after one in the morning. When Hanson and the girl came out, I offered myself as a taxi. Bloody fool. We drove for a few minutes and then I said, I knew of a very good tailor I could take him there. A tailor? At half one in the morning? He is an all-night tailor and a very good one. I did not invent him. Hanson said, stop the car. I stopped. I say, Mr. Rumbelow was my friend and his friend, and he was very proud of Hanson. There was money waiting for him, no problem. Yeah, lumpy rice for brains. What did Hanson say? He dragged me out of the car. He lifted me up, way up, and threw me across the street, all the way across. He is very strong. Did he say nothing? He said, 
Tell Rumbolo if he comes for me, I will kill him. All this nonsense and the dreadful Rumbolo had made me very tired. I tried to sleep, but as soon as I lay down, I was wide awake. An hour later, I was at the sea of happiness. I paid my fifty dollars, removed my shoes, and soon I was in a neon-lit cubicle ordering number nineteen from the menu. She was indeed very young. I couldn't be sure she was as much as fourteen. She was so slight I was astonished that she was equal to the work. But here she was, writhing on a chaise longue, going through her repertoire of what she imagined were erotic poses. Your pleasure, darling. I can please you very much. I'm sure, but uh, that's not why I'm here. I know all sort of ways. My friend here teaches me. You see, I am... What is the word? Supple, I think. Do, do, please sit up. Do you admire my mouth? Here, take this. Thank you. Two thousand baht. You give it to the Mamasan to release you and the girl for the night. I have to advise you that you're in breach of your contract with our company. Also, you've assaulted a Thai citizen, and your girlfriend here is an illegal Cambodian immigrant. We may have no alternative but to pass this information to the authorities. Rumbelow sent you. No, someone much more important. My car is parked across the street. Join me there in ten minutes. There. Go to sleep if you can. There's a cushion here. She's a child. Number 19. Is it true she wouldn't leave that place with you? That life is all she knows now. She is admired, she gives pleasure, she is loved, and she is harmless. Is that so bad? Number 19. They also call her Amanda. And what is your name? Peter... Simon, call me anything you like. How did you get into Thailand? I walked. Where did you come over? Near Svajcek. Is that to the far north? You shouldn't be here. Well, because I'm not familiar with the Cambodian border. None of you should be here. Maybe I should never have come. We have sinned against Asia. What about my people? The ones who worked with me? We've spotted no pattern of arrests or disappearances. May I please believe you? It's the truth. Then I didn't betray them. If you were taken by the Khmer Rouge, nobody could expect you to stay silent. Silent? <sighs> so sudden. So wonderful. Do you love this country, Mr. Anyone you like? I hardly know it. Hansen, the service does want to behave honorably with you. The service to hell. The West to bloody hell. I've taken a bungalow at a beach hotel. We can talk there. So here we are in Hansen's Asia, the Asia sinned against. A few minutes ago, he raised his girl's head from the hotel pillow tenderly while she drank the limes he had squeezed for her. I'd offered Coca-Cola, but he insisted on fresh limes. Now she's asleep, or seems to be. Through the French window, you can see a red moon and rain clouds like black mountains. The room is twilight, 
the hour forgotten. I was working for murderers, American bombers and their colonial masters, wicked. With them, of course, Mr. Anyone, you have a special relationship, the dog under the table. And I tell you this, Kissinger's bombs are dragon's teeth. They are sown and they will grow. The Khmer Rouge will come out of the jungle. They will take the cities. That will be a new kind of hell. You guided the bombers. Better me than American technology, thousands of feet in the air. Their computers misread the chatter of children as military commands. The children were slaughtered. I was on the ground, truly listening. But I was another man when I guided the bombs. I hope the young pilots are other men now. You were excavating a Buddhist temple, is that right? That was your cover? I was excavating the temple because it is wondrous. But yes, I also made maps, recruited helpers, taught them how to listen and remember and report. And with my radio, I guided the bombers. One evening, I came home from the temple. I'd made a good find that day. I remember that. I can feel my grin. Marie! Marie, are you here? If you're hiding, come out now. Outside! Anyone? Marie! Who was Marie? My daughter. Hong Sai was my wife. Your wife? I had been married for 12 years, and your service never knew, nor about Marie. Have I been gravely in breach of service rules? I rather think you have, but um, no matter. No matter, indeed. When I lifted that child from her mother's womb, I myself cut the cord with a ritual bamboo stave. When the women in attendance brought me water to wash her, I christened her Marie, after my own mother and the mother of Christ. I had the authority. I was priest and father. Yes, so your village was empty, but no sign of struggle? None. But there were footprints leading into the jungle. I followed them. First, I buried my radio. I destroyed all my code pads and maps. I put three bullets through my jeep's engine. I hated all my work for you, for the Americans. All the lies I hated, I still do. So I followed the tracks. Hanson, if the Khmer Rouge had taken everyone, well, to go after them alone, even with your wife and daughter out there... Why did I follow? Because I had nothing else to follow. I could not allow myself to be separated from God's grace. No woman, no man, no child ever claimed my love as Marie did. You might say that beyond Marie's survival lay the survival of my own soul. How long did you follow? I don't know. Five days, six. I think I found at least one corpse every day, and I remember six corpses. I thanked God Marie looked like a full Asian, or she would have been the first I found. I'm tall, but I'm slim-bodied, dark-skinned. I made an Asian child. So it would have been the seventh day, I think, evening. I settled down to sleep, buried myself in undergrowth, smeared in mud, revolver in my hand, and then I smelled wood smoke. 
American! No. English? No, I'm Dutch. Go! Capitalist pig! Up! Stand up! Up! Western pig! March! The chains were very bad. There were 12 of us, wore them. The rest of the prisoners were kept in a stockade at the edge of the clearing. Some shelter there, some shade. But we were all chained out in the open, in the rain and the heat and the cold and the dark. It was very bad. But I bore the chains for Marie. Do you understand, Mr. Anyone? Children were allowed to roam about, but Marie kept apart from everyone. She sat in the dust and watched over me from dawn till night. Even when her mother was taken behind the hillock for questioning, she didn't move. Even then, she didn't move. She didn't even look away from me. I wasn't allowed to speak to her, nor she to me. Prisoners spoke to no one on pain of death, but no words were necessary between us. Her very gaze would help me bear anything. Her love for me was as fierce and single-minded as mine for her. We would be each other's salvation, I had no doubt. Every day I suffered in the chains, and every day I heard someone behind the hillock being interrogated, the screams, the pistol shot, and I thanked God I followed her there. But, oh, how I longed to wash myself. The river. Take me to the river. I must wash. Why may I not wash? Do what you like with me, but let me clean myself. I demand respect and cleanliness. Phil! 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 Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be white. The party! Only the party! I swear by the Buddha! Please! He was quiet for a while. I looked towards the girl, but she was no more than a shadow among shadows. The moon had risen out of sight. Was she asleep? Was she listening? What new things was she learning about this man who'd offered to rescue her from a brothel and been refused? And now he was telling me there'd been a change in that prison in a jungle clearing. Indoctrination classes had begun. The children and a few selected survivors sat in a circle and were harangued by a young warrior in a red headband. Hansen's daughter, straight-backed, as unflinching as she'd been when she listened to her mother scream for mercy, sat with the rest. Hour by hour, she listened to ranting against the hated imperialists, hours which took her away from her father. And there was her beauty, too. At twelve, she was by far the loveliest female in the camp. I knew sex was forbidden to these men, a bourgeois threat to the revolutionary will, but I saw how they looked at her, the dull eyes drinking her in. And worse, I knew she was aware of their desire. I knew that. Then, one morning, things changed again. Unlock him. 
Are you able to walk? Who are you? I asked if he could walk. Yeah, I can try. Walk where? Assist him. You're new. Here to interrogate me. Be quiet. Follow me. The newcomer was young, smooth-cheeked, with an earnest, frowning manner. He looked like a conscientious student. Hansen knew he must be an officer, an interrogator, probably a torturer, but he always thought of him as the student. So now was it his turn to go behind the hillock? No, the student led him to the riverbank, where an inlet made a natural pool. Wash. Why? I'm told you greatly desire to wash. Yes, but I mean, why now? Do not question. Wash. Thank you. I'm here in your country to study. Your old religions, mainly, not of interest to you, I'm sure. I've been excavating a Buddhist temple. There are many treasures there. By that, I mean beauty. I'm not a Buddhist myself. I'm Dutch. Dutch history is full of atrocity. When he's finished, take him back to Chang. Thank you. On the way back, I passed within a few feet of Marie, sitting in her usual place. She stared at the ground. She didn't smile. Not then. Had she somehow purchased this rare favor? If so, how? I was back in my chains when I saw the student approach her. He crouched beside her, spoke earnestly for a while. It was then I saw her smile. But did you really think? I mean, she was twelve, and as you say, the party hates the sexual. They were ravishing her with their puritanism. Next time I saw her, the torn frock was gone. They'd put one of their black tunics on her. And now, at the indoctrination classes, she sat in a place of honor beside the student. Hansen couldn't hear what was being said, but when Marie answered questions, he saw the student nod in approval. Hansen determined to try and win her back. They'd begun to give me a little more rice than before. They even loosed my hands so I could eat with my fingers. Before then, I'd had to lap it from the bowl like a dog. I could also take a small amount and squeeze it into a ball. I dropped it down the front of my shirt. When they took me to the river that evening, we passed Marie. I staggered and dropped the pellet of rice at her feet. On the way back, she was still there. The rice was gone. She was learning prisoners' tricks. She was deceiving them. She listened to their preaching, wore their uniform, but she was true to me. Next day, she seemed to confirm this. Is this man your father? Can you imagine I could have a daughter so beautiful? Silence! Is this man your father? The party is my father. The party is the father of? Oh, the oppressed. And who is your mother? I have no mother. I have no mother but the party. Who is this man? He is an American agent. I'm Dutch. I hate the Americans. He dropped bomb on our village. He killed our workers. Did he pretend to be your father? Yes. Why? He wanted to seem to be our comrade. Test the American spy chains. <laughs> See that they are tight enough. Can you insert your middle finger between chain and ankle? No. Can you insert your little finger? Yes. 
Can you insert your little finger easily or with difficulty? I can insert my finger only with difficulty. I watched them walk away together. She'd begun to take on the stealthy movement of a jungle fighter, and in that tunic. Even in the heat, I felt a chill of fear. But you thought she'd confirmed somehow that she was deceiving them, the, the chain? Yes, she lied about the chain. It wasn't nearly so tight. When she touched me, it was like the healing touch of Christ. She had joined them to trick them. We would escape together. But for the next three days, he saw neither Marie nor the student. By now, he was the only prisoner left. All the rest had either converted or had been killed. Again in the hotel, he fell silent. I looked at him, sitting on the arm of a chair, hands folded on one knee, his head bowed. I couldn't see his features, but I knew how ravaged they were. And I thought, this is no debriefing. This is confession. The lapsed priest has appointed me his confessor. I remembered what I'd said to him. Call me anything you like. You are American spy! Uh, Dutch archaeology. You are American! You are an agent of the counter-revolutionary puppet, Lono! I am not anthropology, philology. You are an enemy of the revolution! I study, I research, I write, I love your country. You are Roman Catholic, you study Buddhism. These things imprison minds. You are a promoter of anti-party superstition, a saboteur of the popular enlightenment. I swear to you, I love your country. You will now give all dates and places of your conspiratorial meetings with the counter-revolutionary puppet Lono, naming all Americas present. I renounce America. I renounce the devil. Hansen's memory of his torture seemed to be as vague as mine of my time on the radiator with Colonel Yeji. He said he remembered going back and forth, back and forth, as in a recurring nonsensical dream between the river and the rack. But there may have been only one such visit, because always there was the same single silver fish darting between his feet. Of course, my ordeal with Yeji was child's play compared to what Hansen went through, but I am Dutch. I am Dutch. I am Dutch. Were you born? Does not matter. You spy for Americans. No. Names. You give me names. Tom Pierce. Another. Peter Gurney. More. Bill Brewer and... Let me think. Peter Davy. Harry Hawk. Ringleader. Give me ringleader. Cobbley. Thomas Cobbley. Tom for short. Codename Uncle. He gave them dates as well. He didn't invent them either. If they asked again, he would have to be consistent. He gave them Marie's birthday, his mother's birthday, and the date of his father's execution. As a meeting place, he gave them the walled gardens of Lonnal's palace. He'd often admired them. You have listened to the statements of the spy? I am familiar with the statement of the spy. Are they true statements? No. How do they deviate from the truth? The names he has given us are fictitious. They are from a bourgeois English song he used to sing to me when he was pretending to be my father. Also, he is not completely Dutch. He had an English mother 
She too was a spy. Through the redness behind his eyes, he saw a vision of himself stretched out in the well of a boat. Between him and the jungle branches passing above was Marie's smiling face. She was wearing her Khmer Rouge tunic, and she didn't look down at him deliberately, he knew. But he also knew she was paddling them both upriver to heaven. You will now tell us of your counter-revolutionary work here in Cambodia. While you do so, you will write down all the names, the true names of all other spies in your network. I'm not sure I can write. You will write! Speak as you write! What imperious work have you carried out? I incited Buddhist priests to poison crops and cattle. I did this on the orders of Lono. Write as you speak! I have classes, clandestine classes. They were to spread family values and bourgeois centers. Did you guide America bombers? Did you guide America bombers? Yes. I lit the beacons. Then I spread rumors that the bombers were Chinese. I gave details of your supply lines to American commanders. I drew maps. And he was about to give them names real names of Cambodian peasants who had helped him. He could feel the words in his mouth. His hand trembled with a need to write them. When he fainted, he didn't pretend to faint. It was genuine. It was a mercy. The names he had written down were those of Lawrence's officers in the desert. He remembered them from his many readings of Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And he hadn't told them about his radio. No more. Please, I have no more. Comrade, you have read the names the spy has written? I have read them. Are they the names of his court agents? I do not know. They are unfamiliar to me. Do the spy's statements accurately describe his work in our country? They are not complete. Explain in what way his statements are incomplete. The spy kept a radio in his house. He used it to signal the imperious bomber. There were no beacon. Also... During his confinement, he has been guilty of many breaches of regulation. It is his work as a spy we are concerned with. He has been holding food. He planned to buy the corroboration of Comrade to make his escape. Comrade, you know that would be impossible. It was his plan. He has been wearing his food chain improperly. When they were being fastened, he braced his feet, leaving the chain looser than it should be. This is an illegal action. He is a whole manga. Comrade! He debauches our woman. At the moment, this is not our concern. You must listen. He bring our woman into his house and drug them. He sleep with girl on my own edge. Marie. My name is Mandawi, imperious pig. Mandawi. He takes us for a ride in his jeep and sing imperious songs. He pretend that he's the father of our children and that our blood is not Khmer. He is a Western liar who tells us we are all different from each other. He has corrupted our Khmer blood. Kill him! Be silent, Cobret! Kill him! Kill the despoiler! Take her away! Kill him! Let me kill him! He must be killed! I prayed to God that she could forgive me. You forgave her? I blamed Marie for nothing. They were her own people. They were fighters with a cause to die for, and they convinced her it was her cause. Why should she believe I was her father? 
when her own people told her I was not, that I was an invader, a corrupter, a western spy, all of which I was. I should never have worked for you. Apart from anything else, it endangered my daughter. I should never have worked for you and your American masters. You sin against Asia. You sin against the children of Eden. Why didn't they kill you? They threw me in the empty stockade. I slept. Next morning there was a bowl of rice beside my head. Not matted pellets, but a whole white mound of it, enough for five days. And everyone was gone, including Marie. Can she have pleaded for your life and left the rice? I don't know. I still don't know. By now they had no prisoners and no livestock. They had left no tracks. But I went in search of her. For months, five or six, Hansen stayed in the jungle, moving from village to village. Wherever he could, he asked about Marie's unit. He heard of units that had fighting girls. He heard of units that consisted only of girls. He heard of girls who were sent into the towns as whores to gather information. Marie could have been in any one of those units, or be a spy like her father, her cover that of a whore. He went back to his old village. It had been burned to the ground. The radio you buried, had it been disturbed? I didn't look. I didn't care. I hated all of you. When I got across the border into Thailand, I found my way to a camp for Khmer refugees. You could have gone to Rumbelo. He's a dreadful man, but he might have been able to help. I was not an imperialist agent anymore. All I believed in was my daughter. And she was cursed with my own absolutism. Because I was her father, she was violent and headstrong. Only a father's love could have blinded me to that. But now my eyes were open. I could see her drawn deeper into cruelty and inhumanity to prove her devotion, and I was to blame. Anyway, in the refugee camp there was an American aid worker. She remembered Marie. She left, sir. Have you any idea where she might have gone? No, I'm sorry. She was one of a group of half a dozen girls. They were a little toughies. Hard to handle. Were they fighters? Oh, they carried themselves like fighters, but... What? Sir, they were whores. And as for your daughter, well, I was afraid for her. What do you mean? She gave different names for herself. At least four. Her various stories about how she got to us, they were different every time, and none of them really added up. One of the doctors here was convinced she was ill. Mentally ill. Yes, sir. Somewhere along the line, she seemed to have lost track of who she was. Yeah, I think that is true. Take my advice. You should go to the Thai police. Like I said, this gang were tough cookies. They may well have been picked up. So Hanson presented himself to the Thai police. With bribery, threats, and animal persuasion, he traced Marie to a police hostel run for the enjoyment of officers. An official brothel. And eventually, you found your daughter. She wants no big choices anymore, no big words, no promises. Come now, sit up. It's almost dawn. All of us must simply love Marie. 
That is all that comforts her. Here, drink this. It's fresh and cold. I, um, I'll tell Rambolet very little of this. Tell him what you like. Marie wants to be harmless. She wants to be left alone. Your big talk and your spies and your bombers are not for her. She wants only a small existence where she can give pleasure and hurt no one. She's not the child of Dr. Kissinger. Get out of Asia. You should never have come, any of you. I am ashamed I ever helped you. Leave us alone. Marie looked at me over the rim of her glass. When she sat up, she'd rubbed her eyes with her tiny hands like a girl pretending to have been asleep. I think she'd been listening to us all night. And I think I know what was on her mind then, as she looked at me with that unflinching gaze of hers. I had paid for her and not had her. She was wondering if I wanted my money's worth. So there you go. The flight's in um, 45 minutes. Say hello to London for me. I do miss the old sow. By the way, I told Hanson he's entitled to a resettlement grant and that you'd be sending him a cheque for $50,000. $50,000? He'll be drunk for six months and spill his life story all over Bangkok. Relax, Rambler. He turned me down. Hanson wants nothing from us. And what about his Cambodian whore? Not renowned for keeping their mouths shut, are they? One more thing. Smiley told me how much we need you out here. Smiley did? <laughs> Jolly good. He insisted I give you every courtesy, which I've tried to do, but it has to be said, you're an utterly dreadful man. On the plane, I enjoyed, with my umpteenth drink, a seditious thought. I imagined sending Rumbelo and the fifth floor, indeed the entire circus, Smiley included, on Hanson's march into the jungle. I wished I could compel them to throw everything over for a flawed and impossible passion, only to see the object of it turn against them. I wanted to prove to them that there is no reward for love except the experience of loving. There's nothing to be learned from love except humility. So, the Berlin Wall is torn down. The Soviet's own emperor has the courage to say he has no clothes. And after impossible events like these come the ideologies. They trail behind like condemned prisoners. Because ideologies have no heart of their own. They are the whores and angels of our striving selves. I looked up and Smiley was looking straight back at me. Did he know? Had he known back then? that in Hansen I had found what I was looking for. A man like myself, a pilgrim, but one who in his search for meaning had discovered a worthwhile object for his life. He had paid every price and not considered it sacrifice. He was paying it still and would pay it till he died. He cared nothing for compromise, for pride, for the opinion of others. He had reduced his life to the one thing that mattered to him and he was free. The slumbering subversive in me had met his champion. The would-be lover in me had found a scale by which to measure his own trivial preoccupations. And now, in that gaze of Smiley's in the Sarat Library, I saw the promise of more challenge to my unforgiving memory.
In episode two of The Secret Pilgrim, Ned was played by Patrick Malahide and George Smiley by Simon Russell Beale. Colonel Yerji was played by Alexander Morton. Hansen by Angus Wright. Saul Enderby by James Lawrenson. Rumbelow by Jamie Newell. Henry by Paul Courtney Hugh. Marie by Elisa Anderson. The Khmer Rouge Officer by Angelo Paragoso and The Aid Worker by Alison Pettit. The Secret Pilgrim was dramatised for radio by Robert Forrest from the novel by John le Carré. The producer was Patrick Rayner. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.